We'll ask you to please open your Bibles in the book of Matthew, um, chapter 23. We are going to be considered this, considering this morning verses 13 to 22. Matthew, chapter 23, verses 13 to 22. This is in page 829 of your pew Bibles. Now, um, we have been uh, through an, an excursus in Luke and then John and uh, we have been away from the book of Matthew for a time. So let me just remind you where we are at in the general context of the book of Matthew. Chapter 21 started with Jesus entering in the temple. And then he cleanses the temple. And then the next day he comes to the temple and he has these people coming to him. The Pharisees, the scribes, and he has been interacting with them. And uh, after those interactions... Jesus turns and talks to the people, to the crowds, and to his disciples. Uh, and this is where we hear what we are going to read this morning as uh, warnings, as, as indictments to what the Pharisees and the scribes used to teach. So this is not uh, something for uh, me to say, uh, now it's time for you to discover the little Pharisees that live in you. That is not the point of this portion. Uh, that is not uh, what scriptures want to entail to us this morning. It's actually a warning because externalities are attractive, as we will see. So with that in mind, uh, please stand to hear the reading of God's holy and inspired word. This is God's word, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shout the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell, of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guys, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He's bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men! For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. This is indeed, indeed God's word. You may be seated. Now, uh, a family entered to a church one day, and it was the first time that they were visiting that church. And their five kids sat on the front pews. And they behaved perfectly well during the whole service. Their expressions during the sermon were serious and attentive. Uh, from time to time, the husband made sure to hug his wife and to point his kids to the portion of scriptures that was being read by the pastor. 
So after the service, the congregation was just amazed, impressed. This was a model family, they thought. A true Christian family, finally, many of them said. However, what they didn't know was that the husband believed that he was a great father and he was very impressed by himself too, uh, full of pride. The wife, on the other hand, was always seeking fulfillment in the things that he can, she can buy uh, with the salary of her husband. And the kids, oh, the kids had learned to stay put in church because that's the only way in which they can get their gaming time in place. None of them affirmed to believe that they needed Christ. In fact, when they were asked, why did they visit the church? They affirmed, because church makes us moral people, good people. Do you need Christ? Why would we need Christ? We are good people. Externals are attractive, aren't they? And Jesus knows that. And that is why in this portion, Jesus brings kingdom indictments against the externalities of the Pharisees. And we will see this theme in two parts. First, against false gospel, against a false gospel. And second, against a false teaching. So we have two points, against a false gospel, and second, against a false teaching. So let's see the first part, kingdom indictments against a false gospel. Now please uh, look with me, verse 13, once again. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shout the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, uh, for you neither you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's places. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now, Jesus here, brothers and sisters, is speaking in his role as prophet and as a king. As the final prophet of God, he picks up the language of the prophets of Israel by bringing woes over the unrepentant leaders of Israel. And as the final king, we know, do we not, that he has the authority to bring about these condemnations to a fulfillment. What all of this means then is that Jesus is actively condemning the fruitless labors of the Pharisees because time and again he has faced rejection from them. He has come to them, he has spoken to them, and yet they don't want to believe in him. So condemnation is unavoidable. So let us learn the lesson, congregation of the Lord, this morning. Jesus is a good and tender Savior. He's compassionate and he's merciful with his people. But he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He rightly judges and condemns those who don't want to come to him. He condemns those who are, who are acting contrary to their profession of faith. And we see that in the gospel itself. Because the first thing that we encounter is a condemnation of the false gospel of the Pharisees. Notice how Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now, do you know what that word means, boys and girls? This is simply a $5 word that means pretending something that you are not. Pretending something that you are not. Now, pretending to be something that we are not is not always sinful, is it? After all, we have actors pretending to be superheroes in movies. And adults from time to time have to pretend to be grown-ups and pay the bills and be responsible, even though we don't like them, right? And Jesus doesn't have indictments, condemnation against those actions. No, here is the heart of the issue. The Pharisees are pretending to be believers. 
when in reality they are not. That is the problem. Being a believer in the Old Testament meant to believe God's promises of salvation given to them through the law. But now that Jesus has appeared and he has come, those promises have been fulfilled. Jesus is here. They have come true. And being a believer then means to believe in Jesus Christ. But the Pharisees, they don't want that, do they? They want to pretend that they are God-fearing Jews, good-believing Jews, without believing in the King. That is why Jesus condemns them. But there is more. The Pharisees are not happy with self-deceit. They also want to deceive other people and try as much as they can to deviate people, to move them away from believing in Jesus Christ. In doing so, they are closing the doors of salvation to others and to themselves. This is a great irony, isn't it? The King of the Garden, Jesus Christ, has come. And he's opening the doors of the garden for everyone to come in once again in Jesus Christ. But these Pharisees stand at the door as false cherubim, false angels of light, stopping people from entering to the kingdom through Jesus. And this is an evil that we see even today, do we not? Pastors and church leaders that like to pretend to be Christians, but their gospel is a false gospel. A gospel based on human efforts. A, a gospel that is materialistic, promising you happiness if you can only give your tithes and offerings to the church. A false gospel that replaces faith in Jesus Christ with any other thing. A false gospel that affirms that Jesus is not enough. That you need to earn it somehow. Ignoring willingly uh, that the doors of the kingdom are wide open in Jesus Christ. That everyone who believes can come in. So learn the lesson, congregation of the Lord. In the kingdom of God, there is only one in whom, in whom we need to trust in for our salvation. And that is Jesus Christ. Pastors, elders, leaders, congregations that do not point to Jesus as the only solution to our deepest problem are shutting the doors of the kingdom of God for themselves and for the people they are leading. And that is true even in the secular world, by the way. No amount of virtuous living, no amount of knowledge, no amount of money can save you. Progressivism and conservatism, both isms, equally deviate the people from the kingdom of God. Now listen to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he, comes a pro when he become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now the second woe of this prophet king, Jesus Christ, strikes against the seal, the zeal of the Pharisees. Now do not misunderstanding, uh, misunderstand me, excuse me. Having zeal is a very, very good thing. It is a good thing if you have zeal for scriptures, zeal for the Lord. Jesus demonstrated zeal for the Lord in, in, in the uh, book of Matthew, back in chapter 21, when he comes to the temple, temple and turns the, the, the tables. So the problem clearly is not zeal. The problem is misdirected zeal. Zeal that cares only for yourself and for your own group of people. Your club, your tribe, instead of God. 
You see, Israel was supposed to show zeal for God in shining the light of God to the nations and to extend the borders of the promised land to uh, allow the nations to come in and to worship God. But what is it that Israel has done? The Pharisees didn't want to try to advance the kingdom of God. They had advanced the kingdom of man, their own tribes, trying to convert every single God-fearing Gentile in a Pharisee. And unless they are a Pharisee, they are not true Christians, true believers. And sadly, we are very familiar with that kind of zeal ourselves, even today, do we not? In social, social media, there is a thing called Cage Stage Calvinism. Cage Stage Calvinism is, is a graceless kind of seal. It doesn't seek to advance God's glory, but my glory and my group's glory, my friend's glory. A misplaced seal that moves people to deny the pluriformity of the church, as if we were the only ones who can capture the, the entire truth of God's word. Misplaced seal is prideful zeal, mocking zeal, zeal that sees other Christians in condescending ways. It is that zeal that fills our minds but empties our hearts, a zeal that has not understood God's free grace and liberality in salvation. It is a zeal that says, I'm better than you, follow me. And once the Pharisees do that, and once we do that, Jesus says that those followers become twice a child of hell. Why? Because they have been blinded, thinking that salvation lies in a, in a specific set of things, in a specific tribe, as if salvation belongs only for those who look alike, as if salvation were only for those with the right appearance, only for those with the right mind, only for those with the right things to say. They have willingly ignored that the kingdom life doesn't work in that way. Because kingdom life comes to us and destroys sin, not our nature. We become citizens of the kingdom, but we still remain with our nationalities, our skin colors, backgrounds, traditions, cultures, and so on. The riches of the kingdom of God is manifested in the fact that in Jesus Christ, all kinds of cultures all kinds of languages, all kinds of traditions, nationalities, and so on, become one without abandoning what they make them their own. In fact, if you were to read the vision of Isaiah in chapter 60 for the kingdom of God, you will discover that this vision speaks about all kinds of peoples, the nations coming into the king of Zion, bringing a multiformity of gifts, to the king, even cultural endeavors. The kings of the earth, says John in Revelation 21, bring their gifts to the king. What they have labored with their hands, a pluriformity of gifts. There is no uniformity there. There is no sectarianism. Salvation, brothers and sisters, belongs to the Lord, not to a denomination. Let us not forget that. We are not here to advance the interests of Calvin, Luther, or Kramer, but the interests of Jesus the King. The seal that is to mark every Christian is the one that seeks to advance the kingdom of God, 
not our preferences, nor our distinctives, nor anything else, not our favorite theologian. That is not the case. Because the foundation of salvation is Jesus Christ and Him alone. In Him alone, both the formal Presbyterian and the happy Pentecostal enter into the kingdom of God. In Him alone, both the vested Anglican and the sunken Baptist enter in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not like the world, brothers and sisters. In the world, our differences divide us. In Jesus, they find a higher purpose. And in Him, we are united in His mystical body until we will be truly one in glory. So be aware of your hobby horses. We all have them, and we all like them, do we not? But the moment those become the standard of what it means to become a Christian, of what it means to be a true Christian, then we will be opposing the very nature of kingdom life, the very nature of the gospel. So, so far, the indictments of the king come against a false gospel, something that the Pharisees preach to replace the gracious offer of Jesus Christ. Now we need to see uh, what comes naturally from a false gospel, and that is a false teaching. So this is our second point, uh, condemnation against false teaching. Now read with me verses 16 and 17. Woe to you, blind guys, guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? So what is in view here is the Pharisees' interpretation of scriptures. Now when we think about the Pharisees, we think about the bad guys, do we not? But we also need to think of them as pastors, those who interpret the scriptures for the people. Therefore, Jesus here is criticizing, deconstructing even, the way in which the Pharisees interpreted the scriptures to the people. The thing is that God always wanted to live with his people. He made his dwelling place in the garden. Later, he made his dwelling place in the tabernacle. And then he made his dwelling place in the temple. When God touched something, whatever it was, immediately it became holy and sacred. That is the reason why Adam and Eve couldn't stay in the garden. They were dirty, and the garden was holy. And that is why Moses had to take off his sandals when he was in front of the burning bush. It was holy. Moses was not. And why the priests could enter the temple only after purifying themselves. It is God's presence who made the temple holy. But the Pharisees have everything upside down here. Do they not? And verses 15 through 19 are just examples of that backward way of thinking. It is the gold that is more important than the dwelling place of God. Huh. And it is the offering that is more important than the altar that secures access to God. Everything is upside down. It is an extreme concern for life, for life down here without taking account the claims of God himself over his people. But this is hardly, hardly a condemnation of just pharisaical way, ways of thinking. Because God's word, it's alive. And it sheds light even in our affairs today. So this is also a critical deconstruction of our modern society. Because we too think upside down many times, do we not? The most important thing as a society for us 
is not God's honor, but our rights. That I live my life in the way I want and not the way God commands me to. The most important thing in the secular creed of this world is that we are makers of our destiny. We have total freedom to be what we want and to do what we want. Everything is tolerated and the claims of every individual are, claims, uh, are, are claimed excuse me, as the most important thing in this world. But what about the claims of Christ? Isn't it true that we too as a society have exchanged the primacy of Christ for the primacy of individualism? Precious to our eyes is what we are in ourselves and by ourselves. And if we have a place for God, it's in a faraway corner and his right to speak is just silenced, removed. In the same scheme of the Pharisees, God's honor is breakable, usable, and even disposable. But don't even dare to mess with the gold. That is the important stuff. Don't even dare to mess with our efforts, the offering that we bring. That is the important stuff. God is, God is brought very, very low in this scheme, isn't he? His dwelling place is nothing. His gra gracious provisions for communion with him are despised. No wonder they have also rejected the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. It should not be so in the church, brothers and sisters. The most important claims of the church have to be the claims of Christ. It is not our honor, not our rights, not my freedom that we are to be deeply concerned about, but the honor of Jesus Christ. The rights of the Christian are immediately removed from him because in the kingdom of God, what matters are the rights of the king who gave himself for them. Christianity, brothers and sisters, is not a custom-built religion to our liking. It is imposed over us from heaven itself. The claims of the king grant freedom to his servants, freedom to be truly humans in Jesus while we pursue the extension of his kingdom. And even the most precious things in this world, the most amazing gifts that God has given us, even from his hand, like family and children and everything else, even those are to be denied if necessary in order to pursue the kingdom of God. But even from inside the church, there are some that have fallen into the Pharisees' way of thinking, haven't they? So learn to distinguish their deceiving voices, boys and girls, because they will seek to make you think that you are the most important thing, that you are in control, that you deserve it all, that the world is at your feet, and that you have to have it all. But do not fall in that trap. Pursuing ourselves and our selfish, selfish desires only brings condemnation. Making ourselves the most, the most important thing, putting ourselves to the front, will lead us to destruction and to the, destroy those whom we love. In fact, listen the remedy that Jesus offers uh, to this false teaching in verses 20 to 22. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now Jesus' response is geographically, yes, geographically and theologically impressive. 
he starts from the outside of the temple that is the altar the least sacred part of the temple and then moves to the very presence of god in heaven and he affirms that not a single square inch of the temple that has been touched by God's presence is to be tampered with or to be taken lightly because all of it belongs to God. There are not less sacred parts of the temple and more sacred parts of the temple. Rather, there is only degrees of access that God has granted to the Jews. But all of the temple, every single part of it, from the beginning to the end, belongs to God. And we need to take his possessions in a serious way. Never to take it lightly, because that will be an insult against God himself. Now, today we don't have a temple, do we? We do, we do not offer sacrifices, do we? So, how can any of this be of relevance, relevance excuse me, for us today? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Because the answer to those questions is that today we have something way much better than the temple. We have Jesus Christ dwelling in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we, we ourselves, are the temple. God himself dwelling in us and among us. We have come to become one with him, his own possession, and nothing, not even the most meaningless tip of our lives, is to be handed out to the devil. As if there were areas of our lives upon which God is not concerned about. Yes, boys and girls, every single thing in our lives, even the most meaningless things in our lives, have a sacredness to it. Why? Because we are so special? No, but because God who dwells in us sanctifies, purifies, everything and uses it for his glory that is the leavening power of the kingdom of god it grows in us puts us puts sin to death it moves us in our vocations in a school at home to seek god's glory to live as citizens of his kingdom because we congregation of the lord we are little gates of heaven on earth because of jesus through us we have the power of heaven, the life of God in us, running through our lives. We are signposts in this world, lights that shines his glories. And when we meet to worship, we are spiritually moved in he, into his presence. Now, how can that be possible? Well, let me tell you how it's not possible. It's not possible through your own efforts, a la Pharisee style. It's not possible through putting yourselves and ourselves at the center. We cannot do it ourselves. It is only possible if we fix our eyes in the one who is speaking in the text. It is only possible if we understand that this prophet king who is speaking right now has born not to condemn the world, but to save it. It is possible because he who obeyed the law perfectly, Jesus Christ, did it in your place and in your behalf. And it is possible finally, because this perfect Savior Jesus Christ, this prophet king, is also a priest who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to sanctify all of us. So from the altar of the cross and through the shedding of his blood to the, before the Father, he has acquired 
perfect redemption for his people. This is how it's possible. This morning, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we are told that we are not to look to ourselves. We are told that we not, are not to look into our own efforts, not to be deceived by externalities, but we are to look to Jesus Christ. Only in him we can find salvation. May we do so now. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, how many times we have been deceived by thinking that if we just do this or that, we will um, be uh, pleasing you better, uh, that we can just earn our salvation before you, that we can just um, do better and try harder. But that is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you have sent to Jesus Christ, who obeyed perfectly, so we can have eternal life. So Lord, please help us to abandon um, our efforts, to abandon um, our, our pride, and help us to look to you. You are the only one who can bring salvation, and what a comfort that is. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you for his work on the cross. And thank you that because of him, you are dwelling in us. We are your temple. And we are moving forward to the day in which we will uh, dwell with you forever. Uh, we pray that you may help us to remember those truths as we walk in this world and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, as a hymn of response, we have number 253. 253. Um, there is a fountain filled with blood. 253. There is a fountain filled with blood. Please stand as we sing this song.